Welcome to NTD News Today. I'm Kevin Hogan. Let's take a look at our top stories. President Biden and Democrats have now spent as much as former President Trump and the GOP did in his last two years in office. But is there a difference between then and now? Representative Liz Cheney loses her House seat. Trump-backed challenger Harriet Hageman doubles Cheney's votes to win Wyoming's House-at-Large GOP primary. And in the Alaska primaries, Senator Lisa Murkowski, Trump-endorsed Kelly Chewbacca, and Sarah Palin all advance. Moderna tests reveal lasting impacts of mRNA vaccines. The results show that the COVID-19 vaccine caused malformations in lab rats' offspring. Mexico plans to ask companies from the U.S. and Germany to help it rescue trapped miners. The country is having trouble removing water and debris from the mine. Since President Biden's first day in office, Democrats have passed about $3.8 trillion in bills. The newest one is the Inflation Reduction Act that Biden just signed yesterday. Democrats and Republicans are divided whether all the spending will help or hurt the economy. NTD's Jessica Beatty has more. A victory lap for President Biden Tuesday as he signed a sweeping health care, tax and climate bill into law. The bill's expected to raise about $740 billion and spend about $440 billion. The Inflation Reduction Act is a scaled-back version of Biden's Build Back Better plan and represents the largest climate investment in American history. The Inflation Reduction Act does so many things that for so many years, so many of us have fought to make happen. The administration says the act will reduce the deficit and be paid for through new taxes including a 15% minimum tax on large corporations and a 1% tax on stock buybacks. Democrats used a budgetary procedure to pass the bill along party lines, with zero support from Republicans. Democrats are catastrophically out of touch with what American families actually do care about, and their reckless taxing and spending proves it. Some economists have signaled their support for the new law, but others suggest it will not lower inflation. The nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office says under the bill, working class Americans will have to pay billions of dollars in new taxes. While Republicans are raising concerns that new spending and taxing will hurt the economy amid inflation, Democrat lawmakers view the new law as the latest win for their agenda, which amounts to about $3.8 trillion in new spending in less than two years. The bills bring in some revenue to offset the spending, but won't make much of a dent, according to R Street Institute's policy director for governance, Jonathan Bidlack. He told Fox News that Republicans also spend a lot under former President Trump, especially during the CCP virus pandemic. But even though things are getting back to normal, Democrats haven't dialed back the spending. Bidlack said there's a difference between spending at the height of a pandemic when we were basically seeing a massive decrease in demand versus spending now when we're seeing kind of rampant inflation. Jessica Beatty, NTD News. With the Inflation Reduction Act now law, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer said it shows how persistent their caucus is. So how will this law affect inflation and energy prices? We bring you an expert with over 30 years experience in financial markets to learn more. Joining us now is Joseph Trevisani, who's a senior analyst at FX Street, to discuss the Inflation Reduction Act. Pleasure having you on, Joseph. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Democrats are praising the law, with the White House saying it's a win for democracy and that Americans who make less than $400,000 a year will not pay a penny more in taxes. What's your perspective on this, given that it calls for 87,000 new IRS employees? 
Well, they have to. All those IRS employees have to do something. Now, there it's certainly a case that the, the IRS probably needed to update its enforcement actions. However, in the United States, the bulk of revenue, tax revenue, always comes from the middle class, regardless of what any proponent of the bill says. Simply because that's where the money is. The great preponderance of funding is always an imposition on the middle class. This will be so also. In addition. Uh, the bill raises corporate taxes. Those are bound to be passed on to the consumer. So both sides are inflationary. Now, can you help us understand why exactly we're seeing this high inflation, whether it's the war, whether it's COVID relief, pent-up demand, and whether or not the provisions in the bill will actually take effect before these natural factors dissolve? That's true. Well, the, the inflation comes from several sources. First, it comes from the Fed's spending, the Fed's um, extra money, liquidity pumped into the economy, over COVID. It went on far too long and it was probably far too high. The second is the government spending. Same idea, same reason. When you get an artificially induced recession, as we had, the economy was bound to recover very powerfully on its own. Government, of course, wants to be seen to be doing something. So they did something, but they did far too much. The last issue is the inflation from energy prices. Now, this began long before Ukraine war. In fact, oil prices now are back to the levels before the Ukraine war. So you put all these factors together and then pile it onto the labor restrictions and problems that we got over COVID with supply shortages. You have all of these things conspiring in a very powerful fashion to create inflation. Now, this bill is not really going to address any of these issues. As far as the energy provisions in the bill, it might even make it a little bit worse because it focuses, of course, on sustainable energy and renewables, which whatever you think of their, the idea of these things going for the future is not those, those types of energy are not able to supply current needs. You mentioned energy prices. The law includes a $12 billion tax on oil companies and a methane fee. How will this affect energy prices? They will go up and it will raise inflation. I mean, the, the goal of the Biden administration has been from the very beginning to to enable a shift, if you will, to force a shift from oil and fossil fuels to renewable energy. This continues that policy choice. You can make an argument, whatever argument you want to make about climate change and the other issues, their goal is consistent in this bill. It's going to make energy more expensive. Now, a study at the University of Pennsylvania says over the next decade, the impacts of this bill will be statistically zero in, in terms of inflation. What do you make of this? Uh, I agree with that. Um, most inflationary bill in bills like this that are designed to, to rein in inflation in their title do very little. And this one is not going to either. Deficit, first of all, the bill is entirely deficit spending. There's $750 billion of money the government doesn't have. The deficit reduction that is claimed will not even begin to kick in until after 2029. It is typical of almost all congressional bills that claim deficit reduction. The deficit reduction is in the future and the spending is in the immediate and near term. That is also true of this bill with $54 billion of spending before there's even any hint of deficit reduction, which in any case will probably not come to pass. Joseph Trevisani, senior analyst at FX Street. Pleasure having you on today. Thank you very much for having me. Have a good morning. 
A new report has found $1.9 billion worth of cryptocurrency has been stolen this year. Blockchain analysis firm Chainalysis says that's a 60% increase from the same period last year. But the value of many cryptocurrencies has plunged recently. Most of the hacks happened on decentralized finance protocols. That's when services replace traditional financial institutions with software so users can trade directly with each other. These protocols are vulnerable because of their open source code and large pools of assets. First, some updates from Wyoming. It was an attention-grabbing election and the results are out. Republican Representative Liz Cheney lost the House at Large primary yesterday. Cheney says that she called Trump-endorsed Harriet Hageman to concede. Here's Cheney at her concession speech. No office in this land is more important than the principles that we are all sworn to protect. And I well understood the potential political consequences of abiding by my duty. I have said since January 6th that I will do whatever it takes to ensure Donald Trump is never again anywhere near the Oval Office. And I mean it. She is possibly considering a 2024 presidential run, but she angered Republicans by urging Wyoming Democrats and unaffiliated voters to switch their party registration and vote for her. She is one of 10 House Republicans that voted to impeach former President Trump. She is also the vice chair of the January 6th committee, and she pledged to continue her fight against Trump. She will continue in her role on the committee until it dissolves at the end of the year. Trump and his team celebrated Cheney's loss. They're calling it the results a complete rebuke of the January 6th committee. Trump-backed Harriet Hageman was the clear winner of Tuesday's primary for the Republican candidate for Wyoming's only House seat. Hageman campaigned fiercely for the spot over the last 11 months, visiting all of the state's 23 counties repeatedly. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has more on Hageman's victory. I did not do this on my own. Obviously, we're all very grateful to President Trump. Trump asked Wyoming voters at a rally for Hageman in May to tell Cheney, Liz, you're fired. Hageman tallied over 65% of the vote in Wyoming's GOP House at-Large primary. Cheney had just under 30%. On the Democratic side, Lynette Graybull got her party's nomination with over 60% of the vote. Cheney avoided campaigning in public, citing security concerns, and chose to campaign in small, private gatherings instead. Hageman, who was raised on an eastern Wyoming ranch and owns a Cheyenne law firm, proudly touted Trump's endorsement during her campaign. Our republic is not in danger because of President Donald J. Trump. President Trump was an excellent president for the United States of America and especially for the state of Wyoming. She emphasized her Wyoming roots, her background in natural resources, water rights, and public lands policy. Hageman has pledged to visit Wyoming's 23 counties at least once a year if elected and to champion Wyoming ideals. With Cheney's loss, only two out of ten House Republicans that voted to impeach Trump are moving on to the general election, Representatives Dan Newhouse and David Valadell. Out of the other eight, four are retiring, and four, including Cheney, lost their primaries. Hageman is expected to have an easy victory in November. Wyoming hasn't elected a Democrat to the House since 1976. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. In Wyoming's race for governor, Teresa Livingston got the Democratic nomination, and for Republicans, incumbent Mark Gordon secured his party's vote. Alaska also held their primaries yesterday, along with a special election. They're using a top-four voter-approved process for the first time this year. Senator Lisa Murkowski, Trump-endorsed Kelly Chewbacca, and Sarah Palin all advanced. 
primaries are using an open, nonpartisan system where the top four vote-getters advance to the general election. The general election will use a ranked voting system. Voters are asked to rank their preferred candidates. If no one gets a majority vote over 50%, the third-place finisher is eliminated, and the second choice of that candidate's voters are given to the remaining two candidates. A special election was held to fill the remainder of the term for the House seat left vacant after the death of Republican Don Young this year. None of the three candidates reached 50%. Democrat Mary Peltola is leading with around 37%, and Republicans Sarah Palin and Nick Begich are sitting around 30%. It could be a while before the winner is determined. The ranked choice voting tabulation begins on August 31st, the deadline for overseas ballots. In the House at-large primary, those same three candidates from the special election advance, along with Republican Tara Sweeney. The winner of the November race will be elected to a two-year term. In Alaska's Senate race, incumbent Senator Lisa Murkowski and Trump-backed fellow Republican Kelly Chewbacca are both advancing, along with Democrat Patricia Chesbro. The fourth slot is yet to be determined. And in the gubernatorial race, incumbent Republican Governor Mike Dunleavy advances with independent Bill Walker and Democrat Les Gara. The fourth spot is yet to be called. The attorney from Trump's 2020 election campaign is ordered to testify in Georgia. It's part of the ongoing investigation in Fulton County. The county's district attorney requested a special purpose grand jury to investigate, quote, attempts to disrupt the lawful administration of the 2020 elections in the state of Georgia. Jenna Ellis represented the Trump campaign in the 2020 election and appeared before the Georgia State Senate. She was subpoenaed in July. The subpoena says Ellis was involved in, quote, a multi-state coordinated plan by the Trump campaign to influence the results of the November 2020 elections in Georgia and elsewhere. According to the subpoena, Ellis, quote, possesses unique knowledge concerning the origin of numerous claims of election fraud. Senator Lindsey Graham has also been ordered to testify before the special grand jury. And Rudy Giuliani arrived at the Atlanta courthouse to testify to the jury investigating possible election crimes this morning. Giuliani represented former President Donald Trump during the 2020 election. He told reporters that he would not comment on the investigation until he knows more about it. Do you believe President Trump is the ultimate target of this investigation? I'm not going to comment on the grand jury investigation. What do you think their ultimate goal is I know here? more about it. What, what are you expecting to talk about here today? Well, they ask the questions and we'll see. Grand jury testimony is closed to the public and press. Giuliani's lawyer, Robert Costello, told news outlets this week that Giuliani has become a target of the criminal probe into the 2020 election. Costello said that his client would not answer any questions that would violate attorney-client privilege. Several counties in Kansas are recounting the votes on an abortion referendum that took place earlier this month. Two Republican activists in the state requested the recount. This is the 126,000 ballots that was cast on Election Day here in Johnson County. We're now taking a blue bin out at each polling site and sorting those into precinct order. And again, a polling site may have one, two, maybe up to 12 precincts of ballots at a polling site. Nine of the state's 105 counties are doing the recount, but it's very unlikely to change the outcome of the referendum on August 2nd. Voters in the nine counties cast roughly 59% of the ballots, and the ballot measure was rejected in the nine counties with a margin of 31 percentage points. The Kansas Secretary of State's office approved the recount. They say the two activists paid for the nearly $120,000 in expected costs from the recount. 
Kansas was the first state to vote on abortion since the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade in June. The ballot measure asked voters if the state constitution should be amended to allow measures to limit access to abortion. It failed by 18 percentage points statewide. A chilling report on mRNA vaccine safety. Trial documents show that some of the lab rats that got a Moderna COVID-19 vaccine gave birth to pups with deformed ribs. Here are the details. Judicial Watch obtained Moderna documents regarding their COVID-19 vaccine trial on animals via a Freedom of Information Act request. The test results that show that Moderna's mRNA shots caused statistically significant skeletal malformations in the offspring of the lab rats. The documents said, wavy ribs appeared in six fetuses and four litters with a fetal prevalence of 4.3% and a litter prevalence of 18.2%, rib nodules appeared in five of those six fetuses. Wavy ribs refers to ribs not properly shaped. In other words, six out of about 149 baby rats had wavy ribs and five of those also had rib nodules. For this study, only female rats were studied and male rats were not treated with the Moderna vaccine. The documents have not yet been made public, but were analyzed by a former pharma executive and reviewed by the Epoch Times. Moderna was required to submit some of the documents to the FDA during the vaccine approval process. Despite the lab results, the FDA issued a statement in January regarding the Moderna vaccine, saying no vaccine-related fetal malformations or variations and no adverse effects on postnatal development were observed in the study. Dr. James Thorpe, an expert in maternal fetal medicine, told the Epoch Times, this was an extremely dangerous warning signal in the reproductive toxicology studies and was never brought to the light of day to protect our global citizens. The CDC, Pfizer, Moderna, and the flagship medical journals of the medical industrial complex lied to the American public and should be held accountable. Up next, New York State's gun ban alarms rural gun owners who say it threatens their way of life. Locals who hunt frequently see the ban as too restrictive. Find out more in just a minute. A New York state law bans guns in sensitive locations. Locals in the Adirondack Mountains are worried the law will infringe on their way of life. Here's more. The sound of gunfire is nothing new in New York's Adirondack Mountains where hunting is common. But many locals are worried their way of life will soon change. After the U.S. Supreme Court in June established a constitutional right to carry weapons in public, New York lawmakers created a long list of sensitive locations that turn many places into gun-free zones, including big chunks of the Adirondacks. Come September 1st, having any kind of firearm in newly restricted places like bars, concert venues, and also parks will be a felony. If the state law is interpreted as meaning a firearm can't be on state land, I can't drive here. Hunting is a way of life for Rick Bennett, whose house is in the middle of Adirondack Park, which covers a fifth of New York's landmass. Bennett sells guns and fishing tackle from his store in North Creek. He has issue with private property becoming a restricted location if owners don't post signs saying guns are welcome. Because basically you're telling me I can't go anywhere unless there's a sign, unless everybody posts a sign that says handguns are welcome here, I can't go. 
I can't go to, to Stewart's for a cup of coffee. I can't stop at Tops for, for a pound of ground beef because without leaving a handgun at home. John Bow is president of a private shooting range in the area. You know, we hunt, we fish, we trap, we recreate up here, you know, and um, we have, a, luckily, fortunately, a lot of public land to do that. This will significantly reduce, if not eliminate, some of that access. Hunting will still be allowed under the law, but some of the other things that you might do, uh, carry a pistol for trapping, is that exempted? Um, are you, can you carry a pistol legally outside of your home? It's highly questionable with this new law. Democratic lawmakers wanted to make sure concealed weapons could not be carried in crowded areas like Times Square or the New York City subway. But gun advocates upstate say Manhattan and the Adirondacks are not the same. The week after the law passed, the Office of Democratic Governor Kathy Hochul said state-owned forest preserve land in the park should not be considered sensitive locations, contradicting the bill's sponsors. And county clerks involved in the gun license system say the law is confusing, which does little to ease the minds of residents like Rick Bennett. And in other news, the U.S. government says the need for water conservation is now drastic in order to protect dwindling reservoirs in the West from overuse and severe drought. But the Federal Bureau of Reclamation spared seven Western states from mandatory cutbacks for now. Officials extended a mid-August deadline for those states to reduce their usage of the Colorado River by an unprecedented 15 to 30 percent. Officials are now falling back on previously negotiated cuts. Reductions will be imposed on Nevada, Arizona, and over the border in Mexico, which also receives an allotment of water from the Colorado River. Meanwhile, California, the river's largest user, has so far managed to avoid cutbacks. The reductions, imposed on the same states for a second year in a row, are causing tensions to flare. However, federal officials are warning that more cuts are needed. The nation's southwest region has been suffering from a 23-year megadrought, the worst on record in at least 1,200 years. Lake Mead and Lake Powell are barely above one-quarter of their capacity. If they fall much lower, they will be unable to generate hydroelectric power for millions in the West. Thousands of people living in Michigan are being advised to boil their water. Inspections revealed unexpected damage to the largest pipe in their water system. The Great Lakes Water Authority reports approximately 133,000 residents in seven counties are under a boil water advisory. This after a leak was discovered Saturday in a 120-inch water transmission main. It distributes water from a treatment facility to residents. After inspecting the pipe that broke, they discovered an additional high-pressure pipe that required repair. Officials say 48 feet of the pipe needs to be replaced, but water pressure has been restored to those impacted and water is still available for sanitary purposes. A massive water spout sighted off the Florida panhandle city of Destin. Videos show a tornado-like funnel connecting sea to sky. Onlookers called it ominous and surreal. Let's take a look. Senior editor at AccuWeather, Jesse Farrell, says this water spout looks more powerful than the ones that usually pass through Florida. She says it might have been formed by a supercell thunderstorm, while weaker ones are formed through rain showers. This is the fifth water spout reported off the Florida panhandle so far this summer. It's also the westernmost spout of those reported so far. 
AccuWeather radar shows a line of thunderstorms formed off the coast of Florida Panhandle early in the morning. The National Weather Service issued a special warning after the water spout was discovered. Farrell says data on water spouts isn't updated frequently and that most of them go unreported. Local Boo Freeman filmed this water spout and told AccuWeather that he has seen a lot of them, including one just last week. Mexico will ask both a German and U.S. company to help rescue 10 miners. They've been trapped in a coal mine for nearly two weeks. Families are urging quicker action to save them. The foreign ministry did not immediately respond when asked which two companies it contacted. The miners became confined underground on August 3rd when a tunnel wall collapsed. It triggered flooding throughout the mine. Water surged more than halfway up the 197-foot mine shafts, and officials have struggled to extract enough water and debris to be able to safely send rescue teams into the mine. Engineers are pumping water out of the mine while working on sealing off another nearby mine to stop its water flow. Relatives of the trapped miners said their frustration has mounted with each delay and that they blame the government for not acting faster. And if you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And coming up, federal agents raid a pharmacy in the Miami area. Evidence shows it could be operating as the largest opioid pill mill in Florida. And authorities consider San Diego, California to be the fentanyl epicenter, but experts reveal Wuhan, China is the source of materials used to make the drug. Find out more in just a minute here on NTD News. Welcome back. In the latest from federal efforts to crack down on opioids, law enforcement agents raided a Miami area pharmacy yesterday. Evidence indicates that the establishment might be operating the largest opioid pill mill in Florida. Reuters witnessed more than a dozen officers executing a search warrant at Health Plus Pharmacy in Miramar, Florida. The agencies on scene included the Drug Enforcement Administration and the Health and Human Services Inspector General's Office. A source told Reuters that FBI agents were also involved. Government records show the pharmacy has been in business since at least 2006. It's the latest target in the Justice Department's ongoing efforts to crack down on the illegal diversion of prescription painkillers, which have helped fuel the nation's opioid epidemic. A source who asked to remain anonymous told Reuters the pharmacy was suspected of illegally selling Oxycontin, a highly addictive painkiller. Reuters also witnessed agents execute search warrants at two private homes, identified as the publicly listed addresses of two Health Plus pharmacy owners. The U.S. opioid crisis has caused more than 500,000 overdose deaths over the past two decades, including more than 80,000 in 2021 alone, according to government data. When it comes to trafficking drugs into the United States, authorities are calling San Diego the fentanyl epicenter. But experts reveal most of the materials to make the drug are coming from the other side of the globe, Wuhan, China. Here's more. According to the Department of Justice, border officials seized more deadly fentanyl in San Diego than any of the other 300-plus ports of entry. A decade ago, we didn't even know about fentanyl. And now it's so pervasive that in June of this year, San Diego County declared fentanyl a public health emergency. The Southern District of California, 
which is home to six international border crossings, has become the epicenter for fentanyl trafficking in the United States. Between October last year and June this year, border officials seized over 5,000 pounds of fentanyl in San Diego and Imperial counties. That's 60% of the 8,400 pounds seized across the entire country. Our fentanyl-related prosecutions are up overall by 1,600% since 2017, and we'll continue to make these cases a top enforcement priority. Recently, these criminal organizations are manufacturing larger quantities. In a six-day period from July 13th to 18th, Border Patrol seized over 600 pounds of fentanyl in Campo and Calexico. We have found packages of narcotics in roofs, floorboards, door panels, bumpers, tires, gas tanks, car batteries, seats, speaker boxes, you name it. The drug is also smuggled in by hiding it on or inside a person's body. According to the San Diego County Medical Examiner's Office, fentanyl-related overdose deaths have increased over 2,000% in San Diego County, from 33 in 2016 to at least 800 in 2021. This deadly drug does not discriminate, nor do the criminal organizations who smuggled this dangerous drug across our borders. These organizations have no regard for the lives taken and the violence created by their illegal enterprise. HSI is committed to preventing this dangerous drug from entering our communities, destroying lives, and devastating families. The FBI's mission is to protect the American people, and we'll apply the full force of the FBI to investigate and stop fentanyl trafficking. China is one of the largest exporters of fentanyl. It's then pressed into pills, made into powder, or mixed into other drugs at industrial-scale labs. Mexican cartels then distribute them to the U.S. The Chinese city of Wuhan has become known as the fentanyl manufacturing capital of the world. Last year, the U.S. filed federal charges against Chinese citizen Chuen Fat Yip and offered a reward of up to $5 million for information leading to his arrest. Yip was accused of involvement in a fentanyl precursor chemical distribution scheme, and his company is based in Wuhan. Factory shutdowns, power shortages, record low water levels, the heat wave scorching China is causing a ripple effect. We look at how some major car and tech industry suppliers are now taking a hit. Apple suppliers and a Toyota motor plant in China have been hit by planned power outages. That's as multiple provinces in southern China are trying to ration electricity to ease pressure on the power grid. In China's southwestern Sichuan province, authorities ordered all factories to close for six days. The move was to make sure there's enough electricity for residential use. But Sichuan is also a critical region for the country's manufacturing. And two Apple suppliers run plants there. One of them, called Foxconn, assembles iPads and Apple Watches. Another makes panels that form the device's light-up screens. Automaker Toyota also has a plant in Sichuan. The factory is suspending its operations until Saturday. In the meantime, China is dealing with its worst heat wave in six decades. Right now, temperatures are surging past 100 degrees Fahrenheit in multiple provinces. The increasing demand for air conditioning is weighing on the power grid. On top of the extreme heat, there's drought. China's famed Yangtze River is feeling the effects, reflected a record low water level because of a lack of rainfall. It's especially unusual because August is normally part of China's flood season. The river stretches from Tibet to Shanghai, reaching about a third of China's population. 
India is putting the final touches on the Chenab Bridge in Kashmir. It's the highest railway bridge in the world. Its overarch deck has been completed with a golden joint. The arched project stands over 1,000 feet above the ground. It spans both ends of the Chenab River Valley. A ceremony was held recently to mark the inauguration of its final joint. The Western Indian Railways Corporation undertook the bridge construction. The project incorporates both domestic and international engineering agencies. A director said the bridge will be ready for use after the welding is done. Currently, the world's tallest railroad bridge is over the Tarn River in France. The actual height where trains can run is more than 900 feet. And still to come, Ukraine hints that it had a hand in the blasts in Crimea. It could mark a change in the war dynamic and indicate the country has unforeseen military capabilities. And a ship in Black Sea waters is carrying thousands of tons of wheat from Ukraine. It's the first humanitarian cargo ship to leave Ukraine for an African country since Russia's invasion. We'll have all that and more for you right here on NTD News. Ukraine's government is hinting at being involved in an explosion in Crimea. If they were, it would mean Ukraine has a new capability to strike deeper into Russian annexed territory, and that could potentially change the dynamic of the war. Footage of an electrical substation burning in Crimea may suggest that Ukraine's military has new abilities to strike deeper into Russian annexed territory, a development that could potentially change the dynamic of the war. Explosions hit a Russian ammunition depot near the site, which also prompted the evacuation of 2,000 civilians in a 5-kilometer radius and disrupted rail lines. Also on Tuesday, a Russian newspaper reported seeing smoke rising from a Russian airbase in Crimea. There's no immediate claim of responsibility, although two members of the Ukrainian president's office hinted at the country's involvement on Twitter in what they called demilitarization, a mocking reference to a word Russia uses to justify its invasion. The war is approaching the end of its sixth month, but until last week, the area appeared beyond the Ukrainian military's reach. That was when explosions hit another Russian airbase, destroying several planes. Russia has blamed Tuesday's explosion on sabotage, a rare admission that forces loyal to the Ukrainian government have hit its supply lines. Crimea, which was annexed by Moscow in 2014, is used by Russia to reinforce its troops fighting in other areas of the war. Russian authorities reported few wounded and no deaths in Tuesday's incident. The Baltic state of Estonia plans to remove all public Soviet memorials in its majority Russian-speaking city of Narva. The government said there has been rising tensions in the city and it accused Russia of trying to exploit the past to divide Estonian society. Estonia used to be part of the Soviet Union. It became a member of both NATO and the European Union after the fall of the Soviet Union. Following the Russian invasion of Ukraine in February, Estonia and its other Baltic neighbors feared that they could be next. Nearly a quarter of Estonia's population of 1.3 million are ethnic Russians. On Tuesday, Estonian authorities in Narva removed, at short notice, a World War II-era Soviet tank from the city. And on Tuesday, the bulk carrier called the Brave Commander moved through the waters of the Black Sea. This is the first humanitarian cargo ship to leave Ukraine for an African country since Russia's invasion in February. It's carrying thousands of tons of wheat. Ukraine's grain exports have slumped since the start of the war. 
Global food prices have been driven up and fears of shortages in Africa and the Middle East have been mounting. Three Black Sea ports were unblocked last month under a deal between Russia and Ukraine brokered by the United Nations and Turkey. The UN-chartered Brave Commander is heading for Djibouti, with the wheat supplies then destined for Ethiopia. The bulk carrier was loaded at the weekend in Ukraine's Pivdenyi. Speaking at the port, the UN's resident coordinator for Ukraine, Denise Brown, said they hoped there would be many more shipments to countries in need. There are at least five who are already in famine-like conditions and another 20 that are on the what we call the watch list for famine. So these shipments are going to be hugely important to those populations. African governments have largely avoided taking sides in the European conflict and have refused to join Western condemnation and sanctions. However, the continent is particularly vulnerable to the fallout. Earlier in August, the United States ambassador to the UN said the conflict will cause 40 million people to become food insecure and that sub-Saharan Africa will be hardest hit. If you have any news tips or feedback for the show, don't hesitate to email us at news.today at ntd.com. And still to come, new brands of specialty coffees flood Brazil's domestic market. These high-quality coffee beans are a huge attraction at Rio de Janeiro's Coffee Festival. Good to have you back. While most of Brazil's coffee production is exported, the domestic market is booming with new brands of specialty coffees. At Rio de Janeiro's Coffee Festival, these high-quality coffee beans are now the stars of the show. Let's hear more from NTD's Andrew Thomas. Brazil is the biggest producer of coffee in the world. There are around 200,000 coffee farms in the country. One of them is Goiabal, a coffee farm located 90 miles northeast of Rio de Janeiro. Coffee is fermented. This farm specializes in fermented coffee. This coffee here spent six days in a vat and is being brought here to the suspended dryer for drying. Erthal and her husband have been producing coffee since 2016. They're using large metal vats to ferment the beans to make them sweeter. The berries are then dried in the shade. Since the farm already had quality coffee, we thought, let's move into specialty coffee. Let us improve it and make it different. We started studying for a better understanding of specialty coffee. We tried fermentation, we participated in contests until 2021. Last year, we won the first national ABIC prize. It was the first time Rio State won that prize, and it was a great satisfaction to us here at the farm. In Rio de Janeiro, a popular coffee festival brings enthusiasts, coffee producers, new specialty coffee shops, and coffee professionals together. The Rio Coffee Festival is held at least four times a year. Patrick Portes is a qualified coffee grader. I go directly to the rural producers, visit them, check their setup, see if they have the situation for specialty coffee production, and guide them from the beginning of the flowering of the plant until the end, which is the harvest and drying of the coffee. He assigns a quality number to each coffee lot from 0 to 100. Specialty coffees need at least a very good grade of 80 to be labeled as such. Acidity, body, flavor, and aroma play a major role. People today are learning how to drink coffee. 
Before, coffee was consumed with sugar or sweetener, which removed the flavor, and people felt the taste of sugar. Specialty coffee doesn't need sugar and it doesn't need sweetening. It's already sweet. That's why it's a specialty coffee. According to the Brazilian Coffee Industry Association, the number of certified brands of specialty coffee reached 287 in 2022, a 78% increase compared to 2019. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Denmark's fashion industry has reached a new sustainability agreement that's ahead of sweeping EU textile recycling rules set to be introduced in the coming years. According to the EU, European textile consumption ranks fourth on negative environmental impact after food, housing, and transportation. NTD's Andrew Thomas has more. Copenhagen Fashion Week is going green. All clothing and textiles from participating companies must consist of at least 40% recycled material by the end of the decade. Ten of the country's clothing and textile companies have already signed up. It's set to be expanded to Norway, Sweden and Finland next year. Well, I think it's very important to underline that it's actually companies committing themselves to targets. So it means more recycling, more reuse of fibers, and also these uh, circular design guides. The Copenhagen International Fashion Fair is hosting over 40 Danish fashion brands already exploring circular economy techniques. Copenhagen-based textile pioneers works only with recycled materials. When we are talking about post-consumer waste, it's not yet uh, sorted into colors. So when the demand become higher, then we can also set up bigger and bigger and better systems instead of making small closed systems. Designer Klaus Samsa turns waste from furniture companies into durable apparel. You have already used carbon and stuff like that for making these things for, for fabrics for furniture. And a fabric for a furniture fabric lasts so many years that the carbon effect is very small year by year. According to the European Environment Agency, production of textiles for the EU admitted more than 120 million tons of CO2 in 2020. It's important to me because uh, there's a lot of fast fashion and you know global warming and stuff. I, yeah, I feel like it's very important to uh, do something to help the planet and uh, take a step towards uh, doing something myself. And Organizers here hope by showcasing sustainable solutions, they can help other brands prepare for the changes to come. Andrew Thomas, NTD News. Coming up, basketball fans can enjoy a new show that brings the behind the scenes of the Los Angeles Lakers. It dives deep, more than other popular shows and documentaries about the team. Stay tuned for more after this short break. Serena Williams' farewell tour suffers another bump in the road. She loses in the opening round at the Cincinnati Open, one of the last tune-up events before the supposed final Grand Slam of the tennis great's career. Williams has just one last chance to tie the women's record of 24 Grand Slam titles if she goes through with retiring after the U.S. Open. After a sluggish start in Cincinnati, Williams gave the sold-out crowd something to cheer about in the first set when she crushed back-to-back aces to cut reigning U.S. Open champion Emma Raducanu's lead 4-3. 
but the British 19-year-old fired back an ace of her own to snag the first set and followed that up with a break of serve to open the second. Raducanu rolled on from there, smacking an unreturnable serve on match point. Williams waved to the crowd before walking off court and did not speak to the media later. The Los Angeles Lakers have captured fans' imagination in shows like Winning Time and They Call Me Magic. Now a new series dives even deeper into one of the most successful franchises in sports history. Here's that story. To wear purple and gold is a different feeling. Ten episodes of Legacy, the true story of the L.A. Lakers, stretch from the beginning of the Showtime era. What Jerry Buss did in his first year owning the Lakers is incredible. The Lakers are the world champions. You're a rookie, I'm a rookie, and we won the NBA championship. Through more than 40 years of titles, turmoil. There's a family feud brewing over who will run the Los Angeles Lakers. There's never enough success to go around. And tragedy. I want to continue his legacy for as long as we can play the game of basketball that we love because that's what Kobe Bryant will want. Director Anton Fuqua says the Lakers' late flamboyant owner still looms large. Dr. Buss, the love that the players uh, have for him to this day, uh, we did 75 interviews, different people, and everyone showed up. No one said no. Everyone has something amazing to say about him and their own experience with him. I remember the call I got from Dr. Buss, you know, when he said my last year, he said, you start with the Lakers, you have to retire with the Lakers. And I came back to retire. Uh, I feel like uh, it's part of the family. That's what this, the, the guys I played with were, they became family. And then the business of basketball kicked in. I mean, it was important uh, in this project that we have the people who actually live the stories tell their version of the story because everybody's experience is different. It's all been a very positive ride and uh, I'm very thankful that I got a chance to play for this for this uh, franchise. The Lakers are the team of the 80s. And that's just a fact. Snoopy is going back to space. NASA released its official flight kit for its Artemis One mission, and a toy of the popular Peanuts pup is one of the several items on the list. The Snoopy plush toy will serve as a zero-gravity indicator for the space agency. Once it floats, NASA will know the Orion spacecraft has reached microgravity. Snoopy will not be alone on his mission. Three mannequins, Lego figurines, and the European Space Agency's plush toy of Shaun the Sheep, a popular character from the Wallace and Gromit series, will be on board. The Artemis One mission launches on August 29th. This is not Snoopy's first trip to space. The plush toy also rode aboard the Columbia shuttle in 1990. Jeff Bonert had all but given up on seeing his poodle hound mix again after she went missing in early June. Two months later, he got a text from a neighbor saying people exploring a nearby cave found a dog. We just figured with her age and it was a hot day that, you know, something had happened and, well, Abby wasn't coming back. So it was pretty surprising when uh, we started to hear news about a dog in the cave that kind of started meeting uh, Abby's description. She walked to the truck with me and I put her in the, picked her up and put her in. That's when I realized uh, how much weight she had lost because she was feather light. You know, she was just down to skin and bones at that point. I guess she had just been surviving on her stored body fats. You think about that, being down there for two months without food in total darkness, you'd think that would break up. 
any body or any animal spirit, but she's still in high spirits. And I mean, most of us would need therapy after that. <laughs> Bonert first lost the 13-year-old dog when she and his other dog ran away from home. He said it has happened before, but this time only one of the dogs returned. But on August 6th, a group of adults and children found a dog while exploring a cave. Bonert went to the cave site near his rural Missouri home. That's when he saw the picture one of the rescuers took, and he knew it was Abby. A caver in the group who is trained in cave rescues managed to bring the dog out in a duffel bag and a blanket. Bonert assumes Abby ended up there after falling into a sinkhole or a hidden entrance. And the most visited national park is adding new parking fees. Starting March 1st, vehicles parked at Great Smoky Mountains National Park for longer than 15 minutes will need a tag. It will cost $5 for a day pass or $15 for a seven-day pass. Regular visitors can get an annual parking tag for 40 bucks. The National Park Service says it's also banning roadside parking in popular areas like trailheads. The new program is called Park It Forward, and the funds will help cover park costs. Thank you so much for joining us. We're going to put our email address on screen. We'd love to hear from you. For podcasters, that's news.today at ntd.com. Until next time, Kevin Hogan, NTD News, New York City.